Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 this morning, as we prepare to look at the law of God once more summarized in the Ten Commandments for us, I want to remind you that the law is a mirror that we look into and see ourselves. Uh, We see how wicked we are in light of God's holy and wonderful character. We see that we are not like him and that if salvation is dependent upon our ability to keep the law, we are in a tough place. But also that law is meant to lead us to its end, which is faith in Christ, who fulfills the law perfectly for us. At which point we are able to begin understanding the law in a romantic way. In a way that says, your wish is my command to our God. And so the Ten Commandments become somewhat of a um, sampling of the entire law. They show us God's character. They show us how to love God back in response to how he's loved us. All that in mind, let's once again, we've been trying to remember the Ten Commandments together. Let's rehearse what we've learned and make use of our mnemonic device. And so if you want to hold up one finger, we'll do the first commandment. We say, uh, God is God alone. There is none beside him. And then secondly, we do the, the wolf pack symbol. We're going to make no graven images. We're not going to bow down to them. Third, we've done the Hunger Games kind of deal. You take the three fingers to your lips and we say we're not going to use the Lord's name in vain, not going to misuse the name of the Lord. Uh, Four, I took two fours and put them together and slept a little bit. We're going to rest is what that commandment means for us, Uh, but it's remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then five was the salute, however you're going to do it, and it's going to honor your father and your mother. Today, it's a little bit grotesque, but uh, we're going to turn, we're going to do six and make this one a gun and say do not Kill, do not murder, right? We're all on the same page? Okay, good job, we're learning together. Our main idea this morning is just two two simple words, promote life. That's what I want you to walk away with, is that we are those who promote life. We're going to begin by talking about why life should be valued, why life is devalued, how we take life, and how life takers are redeemed. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that when we were dead, you came and breathed life into our lungs, that we might know you, enjoy fellowship with you and with one another. Father, we thank you that it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. That, Lord, you love us as much on our good days as on our bad days. We thank you that your love is unfailing and steadfast. And it's in response to that love that we want to learn how we might honor you. Help us to uh, take hold of this commandment, to submit ourselves to it, and to be made more like you as a consequence of our study together this morning. Save us from the many distractions that are constantly uh, coming in our minds even now. And help us to focus on your word. Send us your Holy Spirit that we might listen well and that I might speak well. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
So a little bit of context here. Once again, God has drawn the people out of Egypt and into relationship with himself. He saved them from slavery for relationship with himself. And so the people have traversed the wilderness. God has provided for their needs. And now they stand at the foot of Mount Sinai where God's consuming presence is resting. If you remember, the mountain is enveloped in smoke. There is the sound of trumpets and horns. And it is a really crazy scene. The people are trembling right alongside the mountain itself, and God is speaking to his people. We drop down into verse 13, and he says this. Do not murder. Now, this is one of the most dismissed commandments in our day, I think. I think most of us go, I have that one under control, probably the next one too, so let's just drop down to eight and talk about something that is relevant to me. But it's my contention that this is one of the commandments that we all break the most. I'm going to try to prove that to you this morning, but it's going to take a minute to get there, so be patient. That in mind, let's talk about why we should value life. I'm actually going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. There we read. God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. Men and women are the crown jewel of God's good work in creation. And man is going to be like God and he's going to represent God. Because human beings have been made in God's image, human life is precious and it is priceless. Its pricelessness is put on display for us in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, wherein God says, whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man. For God made man In his image, God is saying the price for taking a life is life. And why? Because man has been made in the image of God. And as a result of being made in the image of God, he has value. Nothing else can equal the value of human life. It is precious and priceless. It's a dramatic portrayal of God himself. The the only thing equal in value to life is life itself. Now, if you're an astute listener, you've put together, do not murder, and together with this verse and gone, wait a minute, something is off. (laughs) Because it seems that God is prescribing death in this passage, whereas in Exodus 20, verse 13, he's saying, do not kill, some of your translations probably say. Not the best translation, but I don't want to get too too far ahead of myself. Not all killing is prohibited by the sixth commandment. Uh, We see three types of killing that are authorized in Scripture. Uh, First, self-defense. Secondly, we also see lethal force or capital punishment, wherein the government is exercising its right to uh, take punitive measures against citizens. And then lastly, we see killing that occurs as a consequence of just war or holy war uh, to be authorized by the Scriptures. Uh, The fact that these types of killing are authorized by Scripture help us understand that some of the older translations, uh, uh, I think the KJV in particular, does it that say thou shalt not kill uh, are not really good translations. They're imprecise and a little bit confusing. Uh, The command's actually only two words in Hebrew. Uh, And so I think a best translation, most of them don't have, is just never murder, right? It's just a negation and then the word for murdering or unlawfully 
killing. Now, Douglas Stewart says the Hebrew term used here is specific to putting to death improperly for selfish reasons rather than with proper authorization. All that to say some killing is permissible and prescribed by Scripture, and the Sixth Commandment deals only with unjust killing, killing that's unauthorized by God. Now, at this point, we might be tempted to delve into discussions about capital punishment or just war theory, and you're welcome to do that at lunch, but that will go beyond the limitations of our time together this morning. So let me say to you, if you're liable to get hung up on those topics, don't. Right? You can think about them later. I don't want you to miss the forest through the trees here. The salient point is that all men, women, and children are inherently valuable by virtue of the fact that they've been made in God's image. To be human is to bear God's image, and to bear God's image is to share God's value. In other words, the pricelessness and the preciousness of human life is derivative of God's own supreme pricelessness and preciousness, right? God is supremely valuable, and our value is derivative of his own. There is nothing else on earth like human life is precious and is priceless because it reflects the supremely precious and priceless God. That's why life should be valued, but let's talk about why life is often devalued. I think we devalue life when we think of people as anything less than God's image bearers. Think of people um, as less than what God has made them to be for at least two reasons. Again, my list is not exhaustive. I think the primary one is that we ignore the source of man's value. If you ignore or disbelieve that humanity has been made in the image of God, then you have no objectively good reason to value life. If humanity is simply the the consequence of a cosmic accident, then human life has no inherent worth. People are just bags of cells who came from nothing with no purpose, who live for nothing with no purpose, and die and go to nothing without purpose. Life, then, is insignificant, and any establishment of moral values is abstractly contrived and is just as meaningless as everything else. This is the materialistic view of the world. It empties human life of any meaning, significance, and or value. And when those who hold materialistic worldviews try to promote life, they do so in a way that's inconsistent with their worldview. It's not exactly a cheery perspective on things, nor is it a true one. But there is a reason that we long for meaning and significance as people. There's a reason we end our fairy tales with, and they lived happily ever after. There's a reason that we long for a love without end, for a good life. It's because underneath all of those good and right desires, there is the melody of truth. God has given us meaning and significance. He made us to enjoy love and life and relationship with him without end. As the teacher of Ecclesiastes says it, God has put eternity in the heart of man. God has made us in his image and carved on our hearts a desire for eternal life. You naturally sense that this world is not all there is, can't you? I mean, that there's something more. I love what C.S. Lewis has famously written on this. He writes, if I'm standing in my kitchen and craving food, that does not prove that there is food in the cabinet. The cabinet could be empty. 
But it does prove there's such a thing as food. You see, your body doesn't crave something that had never existed. Lewis concludes, If I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the best argument is that I was created for another world. See, we long for eternity because we were made for another world. We were made in the image of God to live forever in the presence of God. But because of sin, we have been separated from God. Yet because of the love of God, that separation is only temporary. Jesus Christ became man so that by his death, he might reconcile God and man. Jesus so loved his image bearer, so valued you, so valued human life, that he came to earth to live the life you should have lived, die the death you should have died, and rise from the, from the grave. He came and lived in your place and died in your place so that you might have a place in the family of God. That is how precious and priceless human life is. Is that even when we forsook the God of eternity, he would not leave us and he would not forsake us back. Instead, he entered into the suffering that we had brought, our, brought upon ourselves and sought to alleviate us, alleviate it from us. He sought to save us because he values us. Those that have been made in his image. We crave the eternal and desire to know that our lives matter because we've been made in the image of God. Do not ignore your longing for something more. And do not ignore the image of God in yourself or others. Another way we devalue life is by thinking of people as less than image bearers. It is by valuing something more than we value the lives of others. If you value yourself, someone, or something more than someone else, uh, you will use others to get what you want, right? People will become means to an end, just stepping stones upon which you can tread to get whatever it is your heart desires, Life is devalued when we think of people as anything less than God's image bearers. This is how murder manifests itself. These are the, the beginnings of murder. We devalue life and then we take it. Murder manifests itself in two ways, physically and spiritually. We're going to look at the physical first and then the spiritual, but uh, before we talk about these things, I want to preface all of it by saying this. Um, if you have committed any of these types of murder, um, I'm going to argue that most of all of us have committed at least one of them. Um, but, but some of the ones on the front end, the physical ones, is where I'm kind of pointing in on here. Um, if you have committed these types of murder, I want you to know that there is forgiveness for you. Um, and that this sermon is not, not meant to make you feel guilt or shame, uh, but to let you know that um, there's a God who loves you and who forgives sin. Jesus died for your wrongdoing as much as anyone else's, and uh, as the hymn says, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And so you, you can receive God's forgiveness if you haven't by placing your faith in Jesus who lived and died in your place. That in mind, uh, let's press forward. Uh, the first form of physical murder I want to look at is abortion. Uh, we, we live in what's rightly described 
as a culture of death, wherein practices that devalue and degrade human life have become pervasive enough to be touted as rights. We live in an age that believes self-autonomy is the highest good and that the killing of unborn children is a necessary means to an end, to preserve that right. Ultimately, anything that could interfere with anyone's right to choose is seen as invaluable, something that's unfortunate that must be removed. That includes someone's own children. I think tragically, uh, abortion has become the sacrament of modern humanistic religion. It's no longer viewed as an evil extermination of life, but as a woman's right to control her own life, to define herself, to define her own meaning. Did you know in the United States, children are routinely sacrificed on the altar of me? Abortion is now one of America's most common surgical procedures. One activist has even called abortion, quote, as American as apple pie. Statistics seem to back her up, telling us that as many as one out of three women will have at least one abortion. And in some American neighborhoods, the number of abortions far outpaces the number of births. Uh, Such was the case in New York City in 2012, when more black babies were killed by abortion than were born there. African Americans are not the only ones being killed at an alarming rate. Research shows that ethnic minorities are being targeted and killed at a rate nearly three times higher than the majority. Since Roe v. Wade, over 50 million unborn children have been aborted within the span of just one generation. Friends, there is a silent genocide going on across our country, going on in our neighborhoods. And we must work together to promote life and to fight against this culture of death. We must fight against this epidemic by praying for God's help by giving to pregnancy support centers. And I think most importantly, by supporting the mothers who are grappling with this decision. We want to do our very best to let those who are considering abortion know that we care for them and that we will help them care for their child. We want to do our best to help them realize that their child is not just a clump of cells, but a person who bears the image of God. And make no mistake, a baby in the womb is a person. We see this truth throughout Scripture. Just a few examples. In in Exodus uh, chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, we have some case law wherein two guys are fighting one another. Uh, They bump up against a pregnant woman and they cause harm to her and or the child. And while the specific events of the verse is a little cloudy, what's clear is that if a pregnant woman and or her children are harmed as the consequence of these men in a fight, they are owed restitution. The law ensures that restitution will be made for both the mother and the child, life for a life. The punishment will fit the crime. We also see King David, who is a murderer himself, forgiven by God, by the way, and he famously describes God dealing with him in the womb throughout chapter or Psalm chapter 139, um, and these are perhaps his most famous words. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a man from the moment the Holy Spirit acted supernaturally so that he would be conceived in Mary's womb. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel says to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus is the Holy One before He is born. He was, as Hebrews says, made like us in every way except for sin. And He shares all of our experiences to the full, even being a person in the womb. Biblically, unborn babies are people who bear the image of God. Friends, personhood is not based on location. Whether in womb or in world, people have the right to life. And their lives are valuable. The humanity of unborn children is also verified scientifically. John Frame writes, The relevant scientific data confirm the argument from Scripture that unborn children are persons. From the point of conception, unborn children have a full complement of chromosomes, half from the father and half from the mother. Therefore, the unborn child is not part of his mother's body. His genetic makeup is different from hers. So we should not treat the unborn child as we treat hair or fingernails, or even like we treat organs like the gallbladder or the liver. The unborn child is a separate and unique human being. It's also true that the unborn child is dependent on his mother for life support. Oxygen, oxygen, yeah, I said that right. Nutrition and immunity. In this sense, the unborn child is similar to the parts of the mother's body. But this dependence does not erase the child's personhood. Even after birth, children are dependent on adults. Therefore, dependence does not count against the independent personhood of the child. So if you're still not convinced by the biblical and the scientific data, then I think reason, should, practical reason or practical wisdom should still lead you to not uh, follow through or look for abortion as a um, legitimate option, right? For example, imagine that, uh, I'm going to pick somebody out here. I always pick Dale. Imagine Dale and I are on a hunt together in the woods. Dale might actually hunt. I don't know. I don't hunt, all right? <laughs> so it's a little bit awkward on the front end anyway. But we're, we're going on a hunting trip, and, and during the course of our hunt, we get separated from one another in the woods. And soon thereafter, I hear something rustle in the leaves or bush or whatever. And then I turn and I lift my gun and I'm ready to shoot. I've got my finger on the trigger. And then a thought occurs to me. What if the movement is not a deer, but actually Dale? I cannot prove that the movement is caused by a person. But I obviously should not shoot into the thicket, right? Because it could be a person. Dale could be there. And his life is more valuable than the deer that I might shoot. I should withhold my fire. I'm not free to shoot and ask questions later. To do so would be both irresponsible and foolish. In some, according to uh, biblical and scientific witness, unborn babies are people. And if you're not convinced by the scriptures or uh, scientific data, I think reason still suggests that even the possibility of there being a life in a person ought to suggest that we work to preserve it and err on the side of caution because it is supremely valuable. Another act of murder that's being lauded more and more by our culture of death is euthanasia. Uh, euthanasia is better known as physician-assisted suicide or mercy killing. 
It's typically sought after uh, to minimize suffering or to end what someone thinks as an irreversibly low quality of life. Uh, The sixth commandment, however, allows for no such act, and it still applies to people who are suffering. Uh, I do want to note, uh, we can't talk about euthanasia as much as I would like to, uh, but there's a difference between um, removing medical treatment so that nature can take its course and taking action that will actually kill someone. There's a big difference between the two, all right? Uh, We have the freedom to decide about different kind of medical treatments, uh, even if it's no treatment, but we do not have the freedom to kill. Nevertheless, physician-assisted suicide is becoming in vogue, and the wake of its ramifications are already being felt as the right to die is becoming the requirement to die in places where it's been legalized. Already, there are terminal patients, all you have to do is Google, terminal patients who have had their insurance company deny coverage for treatments that would extend their lives while covering drugs that would quickly end them. It's $1.20 for you to end it all, but it's a few thousand dollars for us to help you live six more months. Here's the point, because we, we need to move on. The culture of death is working to target and eliminate those deemed unhelpful to our society, those deemed unworthy of life, namely the weak, specifically the unborn, the elderly, the physically disabled, and the mentally disabled. It is genocide. Friends, we must resist the normalization and celebration of murder We must promote life, honor life, because all men and women bear the image of God and are worthy of life. Additionally, we also see throughout the scripture that the timing and manner of a person's death belong to God. 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord brings death and gives life. Deuteronomy 32.39, see now, this is God speaking, that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death. I give life. I wound. I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my hand. Life and death belong to the Lord. Scripture does not allow us to play God. It doesn't allow us to choose who lives and who dies. We are commanded never murder. We are not free to get others out of our way so that we can get our way by eliminating them. We are not free to kill children. We are not free to kill the elderly and the suffering. We are not free to kill even ourselves. Yes, suicide is ruled out by the sixth commandment. Uh, I do sidebar here. It's suicide sometimes is wrongly taught as like this unforgivable sin. Some of you have probably heard that. It's not. Um, if someone is in Christ, Jesus has paid their debt. He has cleansed them from their sins. He's cleansed you from your sins. Past, present, and future If you had to have explicitly repented of all the sins in your life before you died in order to go to heaven, you're going to be in trouble, man, right? Because there are thousands of sins in each of our lives that we're unaware of right now. And you also better hope that, like, something bad doesn't happen on your way out. You yell out a, a curse word or something, you sin, and that's the last thing you do. You'd be in trouble, That's not how it works because our salvation is not based on what we do but on what Jesus has done. It's finished. So those are some of the ways that we see murder expressed physically. 
Now let's look at some of the ways murder is expressed spiritually. As I said earlier, we commit murder when we think of men and women as anything less than God's image. Let's flesh it out together a little bit. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, this is Sermon on the Mount, by the way. He's giving an explanation of the law. And basically, uh, what he's trying to do is make everybody that's listening to him be really, really afraid. Because they all think, the Pharisees have kept the law. I'm doing an okay job, and maybe I can get into heaven on my own. And Jesus is saying, that, and that's not true at all. You, you haven't even kept the commandments you think that you've kept. It's a lot harder to follow the law than you think. And this is what he says. You've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, raka, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you moron, again, the same word, raka, will be subject to hellfire. Jesus says, it's harder for you to keep the law than you ever imagined. And if you have been sinfully angry with someone, you have committed murder in your heart. Uh, You see, the, the only way we ever commit physical or spiritual murder is if we first devalue life by thinking of others as anything less than God's image bearers. No, no, one, no one destroys something that they understand to have great value, right? So for example, imagine in doing some pre-spring cleaning, uh, you discovered a 1968 uh, Rookie Stars featuring Nolan Ryan baseball card, currently valued at $1.5 million dollars. Being a baseball fan, you know the card is very valuable, and so you care for it. You respect it. What you're not going to do is throw it away, even though it's spring cleaning. But now imagine in that same scenario, it's not you who come across the card, but your wife. She's doing some spring cleaning. She finds the same 1968 Rookie Stars featuring Nolan Ryan baseball card, currently valued at $1.5 million. Being committed to a clutterless household and ignorant of the car's value, She does what you would never do and throws it out. See, the way you value something directly impacts how you treat it. You would never destroy something you understand to have exponential value or infinite value. Yet, this is exactly what we do when we get sinfully angry with others. We ignore their infinite worth, and we commit heart murder. In our hearts, we treat them not with the care and respect due to God's image bearers, but with hatred and hostility that ought only be reserved for sin. As a consequence of devaluing human life, we take it by committing heart murder. Now you might ask, what does this heart murder look like in my life? I've got a variety of ways. First, murderous thoughts. Do you ever get mad at people, so mad that you fantasize about their emotional, social, or physical harm? If so, you're guilty here. For example, do you have a list of people in your head that you wish would just disappear or get out of your life? Murder. Do you ever replay conversations or arguments in your head that you thought you lost so you would win? 
right? You replay that conversation, didn't go so well. And she would say this, but then I would say this, and I would be awesome. I'd have the last word. Murder, right? Or do you glory in what it would be like if someone else failed? Or even long for and plot and plan for someone else's humiliation? I don't know how many of you used to watch Seinfeld. Uh, Great show. Uh, There's an old episode uh, where George gets humiliated. He's at an office party, and they've got some free food set up. uh, And what's happened is he's eating a bunch of shrimp. He's just shoving them into his face. And there's a guy at the party that says in front of everybody, let me make sure I get this right, Hey, George! The ocean called. Said they were running out of shrimp. Slow down a little. George is humiliated. And so he spends, if you've seen this, the rest of the episode trying to figure out how he can set up a situation wherein he can humiliate this guy back. So he sets up a similar situation, and the the guy says something to him, and then George hits him with this line that he's carefully crafted. Well, the jerk store called, and they're running out of you. Crickets, nobody laughs, right? No one laughs, and George isn't any better. But here's the point. We are all George. We've all been George, if you're honest, at some point in your life, where you have harbored bitter feelings, murderous thoughts towards others. Jesus says you are guilty of murder. Our murder is also displayed in murderous words. Jesus, Jesus points this one out for us in his example. Whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin, but whoever says to his brother, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. When you insult someone, you devalue them and the God who has made them. And it's not only the things we say to others, but the things we say about others. Gossip is perhaps the sin that is most plaguing to the church and most accepted within it, one we've cozied up next to. But for some reason, uh, we think that it's okay, we can say whatever we want about anybody as long as we um, preface it or follow it up with, bless his heart. Right? To say, uh, he's the biggest jerk in the world and I wish he would die, wait for it, bless his heart, does not make it okay. It's still murder. Murder in your heart. We commit heart murder when we have murderous attitudes about others. Murderous attitude towards others often comes as a consequence of devaluing them by thinking of them not as persons, but as categories or groups. I'm going to quote J.D. Greer here. Who is it that you think of more as a group, a group you don't particularly like, rather than as individuals made in the image of God. Maybe it's a certain race. The Arabs, the blacks, the whites, the Mexicans, the Asians, or the whatevers. This is foolishness. It's foolish to hold murderous attitudes to those who are of a different religion or race than you that you've never even met. People that are different than you in some ways, they're just like you and others. They're made out of the same stuff you are made out of. They have the same wants and hurts and needs that you have. They love their kids like you love your kids. Their kids love them like your kids love you. They feel pain and loneliness just like you do, and their lives are every bit as precious as your life. When you are confronted with an individual, you see someone who is like you. But when you think of people in terms of statistics or categories, you often forget 
that they are every bit as much in the image of God as you are. They bear God's image. They're worthy of respect and love and care, not your prejudices. Stalin had a quote, I'm going to mess it up, where he, w- he used to say, the death of one person, Stalin was a bad guy, just so we're all on the same page, don't often quote him in sermons, but uh, he'd say, the death of one person is a tragedy, but the death of a million people is a statistic. See, what he's getting at that is when there's one person, we have empathy, we can relate to them. We see the tragedy of it, but when the numbers are a million people, we don't relate very much. We must not think of others in terms of some derogatory classification, but as the image bearers of God that they are. Uh, This truth applies not only to those of different races or socioeconomic backgrounds than us, but also of those who have different politics from us. What's been made clear uh, through this past week is how many people have politics as an identity and hatred towards anyone who doesn't share that identity. Our country is, is deeply divided along partisan lines of left and right, Republican and Democrat. Church, we need to be those who view others not in light of their political position, but in light of the God in whose image they are made. We need to be those who are loving and unifying forces in our community. Our, our fellowship ought to be a mini counterculture wherein Republicans and Democrats live at peace with one another. I think we do for the most part. Proud of y'all on that count. My prayer is that amidst this swirling political turmoil, our neighbors would look at the church and see a people of different political and social and economic and racial backgrounds united in Christ. That they would look at us and go, there is unity there. It's something different. Friends, following Jesus means that we cannot be uh, divided on anything, any tertiary issues like politics in this world, but that we are united in our common commitment to Jesus. Following Jesus means that our rally cry is not, Hail to the chief, but Jesus is Lord. That means that while we pledge allegiance to the American flag and to the republic for which it stands, that we have a higher allegiance to our God and Father. because Jesus is Lord that we must repent of our murderous attitudes towards people with different backgrounds or politics and love our neighbors as ourselves. I think perhaps the most common way we commit heart murder is by inaction. Inaction. You see, all it takes to break the sixth commandment is to do nothing. Jesus illustrates this with a a familiar story. It comes in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him and beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. and When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, 
Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed him mercy, the man said. And Jesus told him, go and do the same. When we treat anyone as less than the image of God, as less than image bearers, as less than a neighbor, we commit heart murder. All it takes to break the sixth commandment is to do nothing. You say, well, well, why is that murder? I didn't do anything to them. And in asking that question, you join your voice to Cain's and asking, am I my brother's keeper? Why am I responsible? You see, the answer is, yes, you are responsible. You're responsible for valuing the lives of others as precious and priceless. Because people, men and women, have been made in the image of God. A failure to love your neighbor is heart murder. When we fail to leverage our resources to help the poor and the sick, we break the sixth commandment. When we fail to love and care for orphans, widows, foster children, widowers, we break the sixth commandment. And and this one is probably going to sting a little. When we fail to evangelize those God has sent into our lives, we break the sixth commandment. Not giving the gospel to those God has entrusted to us by way of friendship and relationship, by putting in our spheres of influence, is murder. Uh, In Ezekiel chapter 33, God compares Ezekiel to a watchman, and he says to him in verse 8, If I say to the wicked, wicked one, you will surely die, but you do not speak out to warn him about this, about his way, that wicked person will die for his iniquity. Yet, and here it is, I will hold you responsible for his blood. Paul says a similar thing in Acts chapter 20, verse 26, after he's preached the gospel. He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of everyone's blood, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan of God. Here's the question. Have you shared the gospel with those God has brought into your life, or is there blood on your hands? J.D. Greer, again, is helpful, writing, If we don't give sacrificially, if we don't ever go on mission trips, if we don't want our kids to go, if we don't have any sense of urgency in telling others the Gospels, and we spend all of our money and our time on ourselves, how can we say we believe the Gospel? How do we not have blood on our hands? All it takes to break the sixth commandment is to do nothing. Friends, we must take action and follow in the footsteps of the true and better good Samaritan, our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who opened his heart and allowed himself to be touched by our suffering and our sin, who stepped out of heaven to get involved in our messy lives. Don't you understand that Jesus left everything? Incredible comfort, infinite joy, unlimited riches to come to us, to enter into our suffering so that we might live. He came to us when we were dead in our sins along the side of the road. And do you understand that he gave everything 
so that you could gain everything. Brothers and sisters, let us learn to be more like Jesus and give everything we have for the cause of the gospel. Listen, I'm not trying to shame you or make you uncomfortable. Gospel isn't about what we do, but what Jesus has done. But we still ought to love God back. We still want to commit ourselves to making God's name known among all peoples and all nations. we're, We're all commandment breakers. We are all broken people who have been made whole by Christ alone. None of us has lived a single perfect day. None of us can fulfill the law to earn our salvation. The only way for us to enjoy peace with God is by putting our faith in the Son of God who we have murdered. You say, how am I responsible for Jesus' murder? Because every time you devalue someone made in God's image, you devalue God himself. Because your rejection of God's rule in your life made Jesus' death necessary. Your sin killed Jesus. And had you been there, you would have shouted along with the rest, crucify him. But here's the great irony and the great scandal of the gospel. Jesus saves us murderers. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for murderers as much as anyone else. He pleads the forgiveness of anyone who will believe in him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus offers the gift of eternal life together with God and his people to all who will receive it, even murderers like you and me. Which is why this last form of heart murder may be the worst. We murder others in our hearts when we hold on to grudges and refuse to forgive. Unforgiveness is a form of heart murder wherein we withhold the grace given to us from someone else. When we withhold forgiveness from someone, we are saying, they need to pay for what they did. In the midst of our pain, we wish our offender pain. And in so doing, we dishonor the image of God that they bear. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus tells a parable that we call the parable of the unforgiving servant. Let me give you a snapshot. Uh, A servant owes an incredible amount of money to a king. It's a debt that he cannot pay. And the punishment for not being able to pay his debt is he's going to lose his family, his wife, his kids, everything. And so he gets on his hands and knees and he begs for the king to be gracious. And and the king, in response, goes beyond what he has requested and says, I'm going to forgive the debt completely. A little bit later on, the same servant who has been forgiven finds a man to whom he's lent a small sum of money and demands to be paid back in full, choking and beating the man. The man does the same as the forgiven servant had done earlier. And he, he begs the servant, please be patient with me. I'll pay it back. Please give me grace. However, the servant refuses, and he has the man thrown into debtor's prison. The king soon finds out about what's happened, and he calls the once forgiven servant before him and says, this is Matthew 18, 33, says to him, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. 
Jesus then gives us the punchline of the parable. It's verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's the point. The forgiven forgive. So two exhortations. Receive forgiveness. Receive eternal life by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. And then secondly, give forgiveness by being as lovingly gracious toward those made in God's image as God has been gracious to you. To do anything other than that is to deny the grace that you've enjoyed. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. Church, we have been forgiven murder and much else. Therefore, we ought to love much and forgive much. And as those who have been given new life in Christ, we need to be those who promote life together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are all guilty. Guilty of murder and myriad of other sins. We thank you that despite that, you loved us. And you sent your son to live a perfect life in our place, to die in our place, and to raise again from the dead so that we could have a place in your family. Father, we thank you that you so value human life, those made in your image, that you were willing to send your son to die for us. Father, help us to be like Jesus to give our lives to the end of promoting life for others. Not only by meeting physical needs and offering forgiveness and treating one another kindly, but also by proclaiming the gospel, sharing the wonderful truth of salvation, that salvation that can be found in Christ alone. Lord, we thank you for all these things. and We pray that uh, you would be honored in all of our lives that you would help us to be people that repent of murdering and people that promote life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.